Hi everyone, Emily Patsy joining you. Uh, now for our part two discussion with the big four. Uh, with me is Deborah Byers with EY, KPMG's Regina Mayer, PwC's Nilufar Malavi, and Deloitte's Katie Pavlovsky. Thank you all again for taking part in this panel. For the first part of the discussion, we touch on the effects of the first half of 2020. Looking ahead though, I wanted to get a, each of your takes on what the future of the industry would look like. Um, we, we talked about it a little bit. Um, I think everyone mentioned it here and there in the, in the first half of our discussion, but the global energy transition topic has continued to grow this year. And in February, BP pretty much kicked things off by setting one of the most, or the oil sector's most ambitious emissions reduction targets. What are the ramifications of BP's announcement to increase its renewable investments and reduce oil exploration? Um, Katie, maybe you can take this and maybe also explore, what do you expect other companies to be as aggressive? So what we're seeing is that different groups of companies are pursuing different strategies in response to the energy transition. We actually just released a, a paper on this and we spent time studying and comparing and contrasting the IOCs to the super majors, to the, to the independents and you know, certainly the trajectory for the European companies who are transforming themselves into clean energy companies and investing in renewables is, is, is a different one than we're seeing from some of the U.S. super majors. It's, it's still early on, and, and really this most recent year is perhaps the most ambitious year that we've seen in terms of targets set for low-carbon uh, types of emissions. And, and we, we saw the U.S. super majors moving pretty significantly, expanding their scope uh, to one, two, three in certain cases. And so what, what we do expect is that it's going to continue to evolve and that some of the factors that, you know, make it vary are company size and regional presence and, and the, their assets. And, and that's what's shaping some of their decarbonization strategies. And then is, you know, the consumer and investor and regulatory preferences tend to evolve. We also see that as being a very significant driver to informing uh, their various strategies. Thank you for that, Katie. Did anybody have anything else to add um, about maybe your take on um, BP's aggressive moves and its effects maybe on the rest of the sector? Um, okay. Um, I, I thought they were I thought they were quite clever, right? With in terms of uh, the rebranding, because not I guess a couple decades ago, Lord Brown, who was the CEO at the time, attempted to move in that direction with the, with the, I think they called themselves Beyond Petroleum, sort of rebranding. So they couldn't go that, back that way, but they did come up with what I thought was incredibly clever, the play on the IOC instead of being an integrated oil company, uh, you know, an integrated energy company and, and, and demonstrating, you know, what they're going to be like in the future. I think the market, it seemed to react very favorably to that. And clearly it was perhaps the most ambitious set of announcements to date. I don't think that everyone's going to go in that direction. I think as Katie rightly pointed out, there's a group of super majors that will drive in a certain direction. And then there's another group that focuses more on decarbonizing the hydrocarbons because we still need fossil fuels. You know, we cannot power the planet without them today, but we have to make the planet great again and decarbonize for the future. So I think it's going to be 
and, and all of the above strategy. And we really haven't figured out exactly how we're going to decarbonize completely, but that's why things like hydrogen investments and geothermal and offshore wind and biomass and, and even algae and some of the other investments, all of that is required so that we can figure out what that platform looks like in the future. As Deborah already pointed out earlier, 3 billion people don't have access to reliable electricity and 1.3 billion don't have access to electricity at all. Um, building on that, so I think Katie you mentioned this too, uh, the oil and gas industry, so they've increasingly faced criticism over environmental issues, which some have attributed to lack of trust or credibility. Um, I think you mentioned this part, like this has partly led to a divestment movement shutting fossil fuels. Um, in, the, in the US, several of the independent oil and gas companies, including EOG Resources, emphasize ESG plans or ambitions during their second quarter earnings calls. And I think we've started to see several independent, large independents um, in the U.S. start releasing sustainability reports and ESG reports. Um, Range Resources even recently set a target to achieve net zero emissions by 2025. Um, do you see, can companies rehabilitate their image and will it be enough to lure investors back? Yeah, so again, back back to Regina mentioned BP. Um, you know, they got the first mover advantage to some extent because many others have since come out with pretty big strategies and not probably seen the same reaction from investors or same reaction uh, to their stock uh, price as a result of that. Um, You've probably also recently seen BlackRock uh, put out a report and listed a number of companies who maybe weren't doing enough, at least from a reporting perspective, talking about what they're doing on the ESG front. So I think that pressure from investors is going to continue to be there. It's just about how you react to it and what you do about it. I don't think there's a company, whether you're in energy or any other sector for that matter, that can any longer ignore talking about you know, what they're doing to contribute. Um, to the net zero uh, goals that have been set globally. So everybody's going to play a different role. And I think for every company within our sector, what they can and can't do is going to look very different as well. So it may be, they can, you know, it's not so much their footprint, but the footprint that their clients um, and other service providers can have that they can influence uh, as a way to change the world. So I think you're going to continue to see um, a huge focus on at least, if nothing else, disclosure. There's lots of companies that hadn't done any that they're going to now for sure be focused on talking about it. In fact, I think there are many companies, even U.S.-based companies, energy companies, that have been taking small steps. And that's what it really takes. It takes starting with those small steps. But they haven't been talking about it. They just have not done enough to be out there sharing that information um, with their investors, with the public. And we're going to start to see a lot of that. We're starting to see many companies now when they have investor days actually want to spend some time talking about what they're doing with respect to net zero and their strategy. And they are now proactively bringing that up in those investor discussions, in the analyst discussions, uh, and putting it on, on, on the table. So I think you are going to start to see, continue to see pressure from investors um, and, uh, and others, but I think we're going to start to hear a lot more, trans we're going to see a lot more transparency from companies in terms of the steps they've taken. Some of them are not going to be revolutionary, right? This is something that is going to be a transition, as Regina mentioned, and it's all about what are the steps that I'm taking, including in the hydrocarbon area, 
And looking at new sources of energy mentioned hydrogen, right? Um, we know there are a number of countries around the world who have put big goals of, of going fully to a hydrogen um, source by 2050, by 2040. So um, new sources are gonna emerge. I think there's a lot of synergies between hydrogen and hydrocarbons that these companies are gonna have to think about and decide how they're gonna play in. There's not gonna be a one size fits all approach for the industry. And, and I think what's really critical here is that they're evaluating these types of opportunities in conjunction with how they're exploring sustainable, profitable growth. And the key is this is evolving and especially as the assets under management by ESG types of investors is growing rapidly is they need to make sure that they've explored this in conjunction with their strategy that what they're doing operationally to integrate um, on the commitments that they're making and that they've got the right governance structure around it is going to be very important as part of that transparency. One thing I would add to everyone's comments is you, you need the transparency. They need to be long-term and short-term goals that are measured at, within sort of the tenure of the team that is making these goals. So that's gonna be really important to, re, to gain trust. Um, there's a bit of deficit of trust in the sector right now. And then the second thing is, not only do you need to have those goals, show progress against those goals, I think you also are gonna have to maintain good returns to the shareholders. So this is not a, oh, if you change your ESG um, practices and, and have a great sustainability program and your report, you know, we're gonna kind of overlook subpar returns. So as returns in other sectors like uh, renewables and, and non-energy sectors begin to outstrip returns here, you know, that's going to be the next challenge. So it needs to be both, two-pronged. They need to also show um, good returns. And that's the challenge, really, because some of the, the uh, technologies you just mentioned, whether it's hydrogen or it's, uh, you know, offshore wind, they continue to be challenged to scale on an econo you know, economically um, for right now. So more investment needs to be made and how do you balance that and, and you know, give back the returns to the investors. Thank you Deborah, for that and everyone. Um, curious, talking about the ESG topic, it's, it, it got, it's made me think of something. Are y'all, from your clients, are you being asked more about ESG and sustainability reports or is it just now they're talking about it more in the public? I don't know if anybody has anything Maybe anything insightful to add about that? Are you seeing more of your clients talking more about it? I don't know, because I, I hear it like there's, it's an increased, it's a trend and it's increasing and stuff. I just don't know if that's true, if that's, we're just hearing more of it from the companies. I think no, there's a that. quality factor here, right? Um, there's been a lot of reporting for a long time by a lot of people. And it's just a matter of, do those reports really mean anything? Are they sharing meaningful information? And what are we measuring? So now we do have standards. There are, there are a few standards that are very widely accepted. So I think it's all about you know, picking one of those standards and, and measuring yourself against that. And also thinking about from, from an internal perspective, what is it that you're trying to measure? And do, I, do you have all the data? And if you don't have the data, how do you make sure that you capture the data to then report out? That's been a big part of the challenge as well is do, we, do I have access to the data that I need in an easy way to be able to capture it, measure against that, and then report out based on the standards that I've chosen to report on. So I think that's what we're starting. See, I, I, I am having a lot more of those type of conversations with, I think, companies in the sector. 
quality of the data um, and quality of the reporting that they're doing and uh, really thinking hard about what they're measuring themselves against. I think what's different, not, not what, Niall Farr, what you were saying, we have had sustainability reporting and lots of things that, that have occurred in the past, but the shift that I'm seeing and how I would characterize it is it's, it's, it's ESG in the operating model now too. So whereas I would say some of the sustainability investments might've been uh, community impact types of things or you know, charitable giving foundations, but now it's really about how do I demonstrate that I am decarbonizing, not just my own operating footprint, but the products that I am producing, or how am I creating less waste, right, with the products that I am producing. So I think it, number one, it, it's definitely a much hotter topic, and board members are very vocal and active and in talking to management about what we're going to do. Number two, it's how do you actually change your operations so that you're fundamentally living the ESG commitments that you're making? And then number three, how do you report about that? How do you communicate it so that it resonates with stakeholders and is credible so it builds trust, which is the point that Deborah made. What's really interesting is this ESG was gaining a lot of momentum in, you know, the 2005-2007 time period and some of the other industries and in particular consumer and retail. And this was right before, you know, the crash of 08, which it did feel like the topic lost some of its momentum in certain industries and in sectors who were dealing with financial solvency. Um, and, and so right before COVID happened, uh, Larry Fink put out his, what's being called as the BlackRock letter, which, you know, really challenges, uh, you know, what companies are doing in this area and to the points being made, how they're operationally integrating and, you know, taking this beyond reporting, right, to really drive towards results. And I was curious, given that this is a, a place that I personally deliver in, you know, over the course of the years, what was COVID going to do? Uh, you know, was it going to have any impact on diminishing what I saw as momentum associated with the BlackRock letter? And in, in my view, it only seems to have accelerated, I think, some of the pressure and reason being is there were demonstrable results as it relates to environmental impacts with the reduction of flying and driving. And so I think because those were realized, right, it's, it's, it's resulted in a recognition that the impacts really can be made and, and they can be made so in a shorter time frame than, than people were naturally thinking. COVID also, if you think about ESG and what's within its scope, you know, pandemics can fit within, within the scope and companies' responsibilities to managing within their professionals and within their employees, if you think about some of the safety and the human health concerns and those sorts of things. So in, in our experience, I, I feel like it is more frequently being discussed and, and gaining momentum versus reversing. Maybe pivoting now from ESG, and it might, it might tie into this, but what about the digital revolution? The topic isn't new, but could current market conditions provide an opportunity for companies in the sector to explore new digital solutions? Um, maybe Regina, could you talk about how do you approach adopting new technologies with your clients and could digital technology help speed up the sector's recovery? Clearly, digital capabilities were absolutely critical for any company's ability to pivot into, during the pandemic. Uh, and we saw that those companies that were ahead from a digital footprint, digital services, a digital channel to the marketplace, had a much better 
method for pivoting. Uh, but we had some clients that didn't have VPN access for all of their employees, didn't have you know, laptops for all of their employees, still had desktops. So uh, how resilient they were. And when you looked at some of their, their global footprints too, with shared service centers and far-flung locations that maybe didn't have the level of infrastructure that existed in, in other more mature economies. So this has been the greatest test of digital resilience that the world could have ever imagined. And I think that the Microsoft CEO is uh, Satya Nadella is quoted as saying, we've seen two years worth of digital transformation in only two months. I, that is only going to continue to accelerate. Even those that uh, I count myself in this category, a dinosaur, not super tech savvy, have recognized the benefits of having the technical uh, wherewithal. And, and it's just opening up our eyes to everything that digital can do. I'll give you just a few use cases that have come up recently uh, during the pandemic. Uh, um, one of the very large refiners has said that they only operate on weekend staffing now. So no one goes into those big refining headquarters buildings anymore. And all those process engineers or the mechanical engineers, they're figuring out how to support the folks that are on site that need to be close to the valves remotely, well then can you pool those resources and have them work across a network of refineries? Do you really need as many people as you had before out on producing platforms, out on drilling rigs? Can you figure out how to, I, I don't think the headcount is going to snap back to what it was pre-pandemic and I do think the automation and the digital technologies and capabilities that we've already seen will continue to accelerate. Thank you, Regina. Did anybody have anything to add about digital revolution or well, I, I want to I disagree with Regina. I don't think she's a dinosaur. I think she's very forward thinking here. So that's the only uh, uh, My T-Rex arms yeah. here, T-Rex. Right. I, I think that this has been just an incredible Petri dish. I mean, if there's any, any silver lining and almost none uh, with the pandemic, it has allowed companies to really say what's possible. So sort of things that were barriers because change management, they didn't want to adopt you know, look at telehealth, for example. These are technologies and technologies that we've had within the sector, but the adoption rate was low because, well, we've always kind of done it that way, right? This is the dinosaur factor. But now you're forced to do it, whether it's remote work. You saw, I think there was a Wall Street Journal article I thought was really excellent, you know, showed a picture of, of, of a group of guys working and guys and gals working uh, and really doing some remote engineering work on an offshore platform. Well, we could have done that before the pandemic. It wasn't like someone came up and said, wow, this is a great new technology. And so I think using it and showing that it's work, it's safe, um, will then accelerate you know, ev everything everybody's been talking about, really accelerate it. And I think it's that barrier to adoption. I think the other thing, we, we're also on the cusp, or we're on the cusp of sort of a data transformation. Because you can't have digital transformation without really getting the data transformed be able to scale the things that you know machine learning AI all of that can afford re regarding automation and the productivity uh, in, um, productivity in, in increases that you could get everything you've talked about Regina but I think you the data revolution was coming discarding the old data lakes going into these new technologies of data fabrics that can come in and work with data in their native environment now you've got the data and the insights you marry that with the existing digital uh, technologies and off you go. And I think the big open question is the workforce. And I think that's something that, you know, companies are going to have to grapple with um, for, for many years to come, really. Retraining the workforce, right-sizing it, all of that.
Well, maybe closing us out, like final thoughts. Um, Deborah, maybe you can take this one. Final thoughts on the industry's path forward. How do companies maneuver through current challenges the industry is facing to successfully end up on the other side of the downturn? We might have maybe this whole two-part discussion as the answer to this. Um, Deborah, any final thoughts though? Oh boy, that's a that's a really difficult question. I think you know um, the economists used to say if you want to be right, forecast early and often. So I think you know modeling the different scenarios and looking at your outcomes and really looking at your future strategy from your where you sit today. So you've got an incumbent asset base. You need to figure out how you get that asset base to kind of you know tick all the boxes on ESG. How do you decarbonize and how do you show a growth story and a return? back to the investors. And so I think that now you need to look at uh, what, the, what the recovery scenarios are gonna be. So we, we look at stress testing, stress testing your existing uh, asset base, as well as what was your existing strategy? How will that look under different, you know, different scenarios of either recovery or energy demand growth? So I think that is even more critical than it ever was in the past. I, I would agree with that. I think the the volatility that has been uh, in in energy over the last five years absolutely requires that you're evaluating various scenarios and your ability to flex under those scenarios. You know, we talked about digital in the previous question. Digital is your key to agility. It's your key to having the information to you know perform those those scenarios and look, the five year, last five years have been rough. 2020 was the roughest of them. And, you know, companies are cutting costs, but just resurfacing that point that I think we've all made through responding to your similar questions, the, the key to investing in, in the infrastructure and in, in recognizing that the demand is going to increase and being ready for that is going to be a really critical path to growth. And I, I would add that I think one thing we've learned during this dual shock, the dual shock of COVID-19 and oil price collapse for the industry is that all those things that the industry thought they could never do, it's impossible, it's hard. They have now demonstrated that in a very short period of time, those are doable when you're forced to. And so how do you now take the learnings from that and truly be transformational and strategic in your thinking? You know, back, I think, to your first question, do you throw everything out and start with a clean sheet of paper? Absolutely not. But, do, you know, do you really focus on all those areas, whether it's from an operations perspective, whether it's, you know, for, you know, from a back office perspective, whether it's your strategy for your business? Do you talk about what's possible? Because they should know today there's a lot more that's possible than people thought you know, two, three, four months ago, and including, you know, all of us probably on this call. So I think that's the, the way, you know, these companies in, in our sector need to be thinking. And I think some of them are, I think others are still holding on to, to hope that um, things will go back, not to where they were, but closer to that. But I think, and, and I think if you want to come out of um, the, the other side of this pandemic and be successful and win, you're going to have to think differently going forward and take some risks. I totally agree with these amazing women that I got to share the stage with. Uh, thank you for having me and thank you for the time. I, my last comment, in addition to echoing what they said, is focus on the fundamentals. What, what shocks me is, you know, when we came through the downturn in 2014, 2015, we knew 
cash flow is important, right? We knew debt on the balance sheet is not a good thing, and especially if it's a, an early stage maturity. So we have to have to have to focus on the fundamentals and return to shareholders while we pivot into right what we know is coming, the energy transition. So even when I talk to subsurface clients or oil field services companies, you know, I ask them, how are you positioned to support offshore wind, you know, or geothermal drilling? Or what is your play going to be when we know we've got to lean into the transition? So it's focus on the fundamentals and think about the future and know that any big surprise can happen now because that's, that's my big takeaway from um, COVID-19. Well, thanks. Thank you all. I want to thank you all again for joining me today. I speak for both myself and Heart Energy when I say we appreciate each of your expertise and leadership in the industry. We wish you all the best. So thank you, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. Thank you.